Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is September the 20th. And our chapter for today is Romans chapter 1. Let's get right to it. Verse 1, Paulus, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Bondservant is the word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S in the Greek text. It is one of four words, four primary words used for a servant or a slave in the New Testament Koine Greek. There's the words that are used for an under rower, that is one who is in the belly of a ship, a galley slave like on Ben-Hur, huperetes. There's the word oikonomio, which is where we get our word economy, a house lawyer, one who is the law of the house. He's a steward, and he's over all of the master's household. That's another kind of slave. Then there is the diakonos, that was a particular kind of slave that related to service to those that needed help in a special way in the New Testament era. Then there is this word doulos. Doulos is the concept of a bond slave in Hebrew in the Old Testament in Torah. When a slave had served, if he was serving a Jewish master, and after seven years, that slave was to go free. And the scripture says at that time, if the slave truly believed his master had his best interests at heart and he loved him and he wanted to serve him and he knew that there was no way that he could live as well as on his own as he could with his master and his master was loyal to him, he was loyal to his master, there was a great relationship, he would go to his master and say, I would rather be a slave to you than to live in freedom away from you without you. If that consent was confirmed, then he would, the master of this slave, this servant, would take him to the doorpost of a home. He would take a punch or an awl, as it was called, and he would take a hammer and he would pierce his ear in a certain way where when he walked down the streets, people would see this hole in his ear, this particular kind of mark, this stigma, and that would be a sign that he was a bond slave. Now, when people saw this bond slave, they didn't say, oh, what a great servant and loyal servant. What they said was, what a great master he must have. That's the way it is with those who follow Jesus. He is our master. He is our Lord. And we are his servant, his slave. And that's the way that the Bible talks about it. We are serving him willingly. We are doing it out of our own free will. This was Paul's favorite designation for himself. He was a willing slave of Jesus. He was called to be a sent one, an apostello, 
was one that was sent on a commission, separated, set apart to the euangelion, the gospel, the good news, the blessed message of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, the gospel, the message of Jesus and the Messiah coming was something that had been prophesied down through the centuries. It didn't sneak up on God. It didn't sneak up on the Jewish people. The Lord said, this is the way it will be. And this was concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born in the seed of David. That's what the gospel of Matthew talks about. And the heir, the Messiah, had to be a son of Abraham and a son of David, not only a Jew, but of the tribe of Judah, not only of the tribe of Judah, but of the lineage of David. And you can read about that in the book of Ruth in the last verses of chapter four, the last chapter in the book of Ruth. And he was born according to the flesh of the seed of David, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. In other words, he was marked out to be the Son of God uh, the day that he rose from the dead. Now, he always was the Son of God, but that particular event set him apart from all of humanity because the resurrection set him apart as the person that what happened to him happened to no other person before or since. And that is, he was dead and is alive again, never to die again. And uh, people had been resurrected in the past. For instance, Lazarus, many, many had been resurrected. Many were resurrected when Jesus was resurrected, but they had to die again. The fact is that all resurrections in the Bible were resurrections that where the person would then face death again. But the reality is that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose again, never to die again. And this was his horizon. You see, the word to declare to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness, this whole idea is of the horizon, that he was marked out. He was declared that this was his destiny. This was his horizon. This was, it's the word horizo, where we get our word horizon. And uh, it's the idea of it is already marked out. It is a line of demarcation. It is an optical illusion for us in our day. The horizon is we see where the sky meets the earth. And in Jesus, this is where heaven and earth come together. Because when he rose from the dead, it opened up the way of heaven for all of us. Because if he had stayed dead, then his sacrifice would have not been the fulfillment of what Jesus predicted it would be and what all of the prophets predicted it would be, a payment for sin. But the fact that he was raised from the dead, that was God saying, what I marked out for him to do, he has done. And it is through him that we have received grace and apostleship, Paul said, for the obedience to the faith among the ethnics. That's the word, ethnos. He says we are going to all people groups, and we're doing this for his name among whom you are also called as part of that group. Now, he says to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now, you'll notice that the to be is not in the text. It's italicized. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. That is, they are set apart by the Holy Spirit. The moment they're saved, they enter into 
being set apart. That's what a saint is. Someone who is set apart unto holiness. Someone who is consecrated unto God and separated from the world. In other words, there is distinction once you're a child of God. And so Paul is just giving his credentials, who he is, what he's doing, what his task and his mission is. And in verse 7, he addresses the people, and then he says, Grace to you, charis to you, and Irene, peace, if your name is Irene, Aaron, that is the word for peace in the Greek text. Grace to you, charis and Irene, from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. All of the Greco-Roman world had heard about the church at Rome. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel, in the euangelion of his son, the good news of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at last I might find a way in the will of God to come to you. He said, I'm looking for a way that it could be in the will of God for me to come to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, this is so important because Paul lays out why he wanted to see the Romans and why he has written this book. The book of Romans was written to solidify them, to establish them. And that's exactly what it does to all of us. If you're wanting to know about salvation and what God has done for us in Messiah, in Christ Jesus, go to the book of Romans and it will lay it out in living color for you and for me or anyone what God has done for us in Christ. And so he wanted to come and see them, not because he was just crazy about them, but he wanted to come and see them so he could bless them, they could bless him, and he could establish them before he goes home to be with the Lord. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I had often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor to the Greeks, to the Hellenists, to the barbarians, uh, both to the wise and to the unwise. This is interesting. The word wise is the word Sophia. And normally Paul would say the word moron for unwise. It would be the Greek word moron, morano. We just knock the O off the end, the ending, the inflection, and use the word moron. And we talk about somebody that is not all there in the sense of their thinking, the way that they act. They're moronish. They're foolish. And I'm not talking about a mental defect. I'm talking about someone who is just not thinking things through. They're not all there in that regard. They're not thinking things through. They've never been taught. But this is not that word. This is the word, forgive me, but it's the word for stupid. It's the word for somebody who doesn't think at all. They just don't think. It's someone that has had their foolish mind darkened. It's someone that is the opposite of wise, someone who takes knowledge and uses it in a way for good and for benefit of not only themselves and their families, but others. That's the concept of wise and wisdom. But unwise here is is a word which means not a thinker. 
someone who doesn't use their brain, someone who we would call stupid and in the truest sense of the word. So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul said, I've been looking forward to this, and I'm coming to see you, God willing. I'm looking for a way that I can come and see you. But until then, I want to write to you so that you can be established in the faith, because if I come, I'm going to be talking to you about these things. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the dunamis, the dynamic of God to salvation for everyone who trusts, who believes. For the Jew first, of course, and also for the Greek. In other words, for the Jew and the Gentile. For in it, in what? In the gospel, in the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he has done. In the gospel message, listen to this. For in it, the righteousness of God is made plain. It is the word apocalypto. It is unveiled. It is the curtain is pulled back and God shows us how to get right with him. And that is exactly why the prophet wrote, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, verse 17 says it is in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. In verse 18, it is the wrath, not the righteousness, but the wrath of God that is revealed because in the good news of Jesus, there is some bad news. And the good news is that you can have your sins forgiven. The good news is you can have eternal life. The good news is you can be on a right standing with God. The good news is that you are allowed to know God in a personal way. And through Messiah, you can understand what it means to know the righteousness of God that is in Messiah who lived a perfect life and died to pay the penalty for your sins. But in that same good news is some news of God's wrath. Because if you and I or anyone on earth knows that there is a heaven, you must also know there is a hell. Because the same Bible that tells you there's a heaven tells you there's a hell. And if one is real, the other one has to be real. And if you can be made right through Jesus Christ, it is not being made right with him that will condemn you. Your good works cannot save you. Your bad works are not going to send you to hell. Your good works are not going to take you to heaven. It is your relationship with Jesus that makes all the difference, good or bad, heaven or hell, life worth living or life full of frustration. You will never know the will of God for your life. You will never experience it in your life unless you come the Jesus way. Now you say, well, that is so exclusive. Well, let me just tell you. It is exclusive, but it's also inclusive. Anyone who wants to can be. You say, wait just a minute. You have to be chosen. Anybody that wants to is. Anybody that has a desire after God already is displaying that they are chosen. And so you say, well, well, I, I can't figure all this out. You don't have to figure it out. I don't know about how electricity is generated and goes through wires and comes to me and lights up my home and cooks my meals. I don't understand that, but I accept it and I, I use it and I am blessed by it. I can't understand radio frequencies. I cannot. I can't explain all of that to and if I could explain it to you, I still cannot make it happen. And you say, well, I can. Well, there's things you can't understand. What I'm saying to you is you and I know enough 
And if you didn't before this podcast, you do now, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. You say, well, what about your Jewish friends? Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus was a Jew. He is Messiah. He claimed to be that. He's either that or he's a liar, biggest liar that ever lived. He is an absolute lunatic. He is totally beside himself. If he thinks he's God and he's not, if he thinks he's Messiah, then he's not. He's not a good moral example. He's crazy. Or he's who he said he was. He's not just a prophet. He didn't just claim to be a prophet. He claimed to be God. He's not a prophet, a true prophet, unless his prophecies came true. He said, if you destroy this body, if you beat me to death, if I die on a cross, I will be raised up the third day. And that's the greatest prophecy that has ever been fulfilled. And to turn away from that, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, tomorrow I'm going to have to deal with this even more, the wrath of God of what it is, what it's not and how it comes upon our lives, because it's so important. And we will see that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because all are condemned, no one is with excuse. All of us have no excuse. We're without excuse. Why? Because what may be known of God is made clear inside of us, in them. There is an intuitive draw, knowledge, desire within us to know that there is a God. An atheist is someone who has chosen to believe there is no God because there is evidence within him, though he stuffs it down, though he knows it's there, he sits on it. He suppresses it. He says, I don't want to know this because what may be known of God is made clear in them. This is what verse 19 says. Neither that's true or it's a lie. And if it's a lie, then the Bible's not true at all. For God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says so. You see, everyone has a final authority to which we appeal. Mine is the Bible. I judge all truth by the Bible. I judge my life by the Bible. I judge your life by the Bible. Because this is God's standard. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. In other words, even his power, his Godhead, his eternality, his characteristics are seen in creation itself. If I were the devil, I would try to do everything I could to uh, make people think that God is not the creator and that we all got here through some kind of transmutive evolution. I would strike at the very foundation of what it means to know God. Either God is creator or the Bible's not true. Because the Bible said out of nothing, God created everything. And he didn't just wind it up. Either that's true or everything the Jews have ever believed is a lie. Now think about what I'm about to tell you. If indeed the things we can test and verify, quote, verify, if we can prove those are not true, what about those things that we cannot verify, those supernatural things, those concepts that God has told us about in Torah and the prophets and the writings, the Tanakh, and in the Brit Hadashah in the New Testament. If Jesus is not who he said he was, if indeed the prophets all lied about Messiah, if indeed the Jewish traditions are the way to heaven, if indeed just every man does that which is right in his own eyes and that's it, if all Jews are going to heaven, if everybody's going to heaven, we're all just, then what's all of this about? It's a big lie. But it's not. There is something on the inside of every man that says there's a true God in heaven. There is a creator. There's a designer. 
There is something when we look at the moon, the stars, the rhythm of nature, the seasons that says by the very evidence, there is someone greater than you. And you say, well, but that doesn't mean, does that all it takes to be saved? No. The moment you say, I want to know that person. God sees the heart, and he will get someone your way over time to help you to understand what it means to know God in a personal way. And the way that the Jews have set up their own way to righteousness is by keeping the laws and being good and doing good. Listen, being good can never wipe away any sin. Why? Because it doesn't take away sin. It is only through the shedding of blood that forgiveness is given. And the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Only God can take away sin. And so the Bible says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the way of righteousness, the way to get right with God, the way a man gets right with God is revealed. And it's revealed in us. We know it. We know there is a God. We know there is someone greater than us. We know that intuitively. And many have lived to testify that even when they fought against it, they realized there was someone greater than themselves. And we can see it in the nature around us. And the Bible says that when we became, when we knew who he was, we didn't worship him correctly. We didn't worship him rightly. And we began to turn away from him. And when you turn away from that who is light, there is nothing but darkness. And because of our moral darkness, we became intellectually dark. That's what it says. Because they did not glorify him as God, they became unthankful. And their foolish hearts, their empty hearts and minds were darkened. I'm going to close with this because time is getting away from us. The darkness, the moral darkness, the intellectual darkness that we see in our world today, in the United States, the crime, the rise on crime, the absolute abject depravity of man all over the world, what's happening in the Ukraine, what's happening in Nigeria, what's happening in on the continent of Africa, what's happening in communist China, what's happening in America, lawlessness. Where does this come from? The heart is deceitful and wicked. And the scripture says that if a man turns from God, there is nothing but darkness. This is why our great universities have turned into nothing more than indoctrination centers for ungodliness, for the left, for socialism, for atheism, for anti-Godism, anti-supernaturalism. Why is this? Because professing ourselves to be wise, we have become fools. What is a fool? A fool is someone who continues to believe something in spite of the facts. Moral darkness always precedes intellectual darkness. Moral revival always precedes renaissance, reformation, revival. For On The Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On The Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at TonyCrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.